New Zealand's dairy industry has intensified tremendously over the last 20 years and has to change if it doesn't want to lose its social license to operate. Consumers and governments are putting enormous pressure to clean up the heavily polluted waterways, restore biodiversity and store a lot of carbon. But how and what role does data play and why should we start with water and not with carbon? Tempering climate change, bringing back rivers, preventing floods and obviously lots and lots of nutrient-dense food. The promises of Region Ag often sounds straight out of a science fiction book. And for these promises to be met, we need to significantly scale regeneration to a landscape scale within this decade. Welcome to a new series where we look into the technologies needed to bring regeneration to a landscape scale. In this series, we'll look at already existing technologies, digital tech, ag tech, new financing mechanisms, etc. that can scale fast enough during the next 10 years. Technologies which put significantly more money into the pockets of farmers, landowners and land stewards who are regenerating their and our soils so they can go faster. And we'll ask the question, what is missing? What needs to be urgently developed over the next years? We're very happy with the support for this series by the Grantham Environmental Trust, which supports strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. You can find out more at granthamfoundation.org. In March last year, we launched our membership community, make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with the two of the three co-founders of Toha and Calm the Farm, which is accelerating the global transition to regenerative agriculture starting in New Zealand. So welcome, Mike and Natalie. Kia ora, Cohen. Thanks for having us. Kia ora, Cohen. And starting with the personal question... How did you end up in soil? Obviously both of you, but let's start with Mike. And how did you end up working on regenerative agriculture, the investment realm around it, and transitioning or trying to transition the agriculture system of New Zealand to start with? Uh, thanks, Cohen. Um, we, Matt and I have both had windy routes to get to where we are with being right in the middle of the region ag movement today in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand. For me, I had uh, my pathway was really coming out of... Uh, the engineering space and into uh, ended up at Deloitte as a running their strategy uh, work there in Wellington. And um, I left Deloitte to set up my own consulting company, which became a consulting and law firm. Uh, ran that for a few years. And during that time, we got involved in setting up building digital platforms to be able to pull data from government and regional councils and authorities, regulators and industry. And one of the areas we found ourselves working quite heavily and was looking at things like land use and land impacts on freshwater, freshwater quality, amongst other things, including things like population health. Uh, during that journey, uh, we got involved working with the Ministry for the Environment, um, trying to look at how the dairy industry in New Zealand can move to a lighter environmental footprint. What are the barriers and what are the opportunities? What are the risks? Uh, and there was a huge learning curve for us and I think the ministry, uh, we saw a dairy sector that was under huge stress, high intensive, high production um, business model uh, and under huge uh, pressure socially from communities and from politicians and um, and well, all sorts of different angles really uh, the industry was un coming 
under attack and many farmers felt like they were were losing or had lost their social license to operate. Uh, during those that, that work, we got introduced to farmers that were carrying out regenerative and biological farming practices. And we got to see the, dif- the difference was night and day. We saw stress, we saw depression and anxiety, worry about the future of agriculture being put into the emission trading scheme here. Uh, growing compliance costs for farmers for freshwater impacts from overuse of nitrogen, all sorts of things. But then we're standing in paddocks with farmers who were carrying out these biological and regenerative practices, and we saw joy, we saw profitability back again, we saw um, succession plans starting to take care of themselves because now the kids want to stay on the farm and be the fifth generation farmer. Uh, versus, you know, the, the, the children coming through the intensive conventional model. I mean, we all know it's a major problem globally is succession. So uh, that was the real illuminating piece for me. At the same time, I got introduced to Natalie. The digital platform I, I had, um, my team had been working on and we'd built, we'd built that to for, uh, demonstrate and prove impact. Where are the most impactful investments, investment decisions, activities, projects and initiatives, where are they and how do we turn the curve on some of our biggest environmental and climate related issues. What I didn't have at that point, uh, whilst we could start to see and, and show and prove impact and demonstrate what good looks like, we had no way of funding that because now we're relying on industry and, and government and others to fund the change and we all know how challenging that is, which is what gets us into the financial piece of this whole journey and that's when I got introduced to Nat. Um, Nat's one of New Zealand's leading uh, experts in the field of crowdfunding. She built New Zealand's largest crowdfunding platform called Give a Little, uh, and amongst a number of other platforms, and I'll, and that will talk about that. But by bringing our kind of tech background and our um, work, our careers together, we could start to see, ask ourselves questions. If we can see and prove what good looks like with regard, particularly with regard to climate and environment, then maybe we can start to unlock some of the capital that's that the world's awash with, particularly around ESG and sustainability and now regenerative uh, kind of the growth of the idea of regenerative um, economics and, and financial models. Um, then maybe there's something in there for us to have a serious look at. That was three years ago, and the last three years has been the best three years of my journey. It's just been amazing. Um, innovation, design, uh, huge pressure. We've got amazing investors backing us, and... Um, that took that got us to soil, and uh, I, I've said, found myself saying on, on a number of occasions recently that this is, I think, this is me for the rest of my life. Uh, I love it, and it's a big important. We think it's a big important job to, you know, help to support the role that agriculture must play in uh, addressing the huge climate challenge and crisis we ha- have on our doorsteps right now, and the urgency around that unlocking the financial and capital markets and other forms of funding are going to be critical if we're going to speed this thing up. Thank you so much for that, Mike. So much to unpack there, but let's go to Natalie before we unpack a lot of that. How did you come from crowdfunding to soil? I guess the crowdfunding piece for me was a real gift, but also a bit of a curse. Having built New Zealand's largest crowdfunding platform, the the kind of the GoFundMe for New Zealand, it meant that I had visibility to a lot of the things that actually go wrong in the New Zealand market and uh, where people have to go and ask for help when they've run out of options. 
And I think after eight years of running that platform and seeing all the data about everything that goes wrong, I became obsessed with getting back to root causes and solving things before they go bad. And so for me, that pretty much led me all the way back from social problems to environmental challenges to trees. And then Mike convinced me to look at soil. And I realized that actually this pretty much comes all the way back to soil. If we want to solve all of our problems, we have to start at the soil. I think it's very interesting. I don't know who wants to talk about that, but to paint a bit of the picture, I mean, Mike highlighted some of that with his work on water, but of the current agriculture industry in the current state in New Zealand, for anybody that doesn't live there, I think we get a, a very pretty picture ranging from the images we see on TV or in the promotion material. But as you already highlighted, there's enormous pressure losing social licenses, especially around water, if I understand well. So in a nutshell, what's the current state of especially the dairy industry? And why is it such a, a perfect storm for regenerative agriculture? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a huge and a great question, Colin. In New Zealand, uh, we do have this clean green image mostly around the world, but it doesn't, you don't have to dig very deep um, on social and, and um, uh, to see that New Zealand has some pretty serious challenges with regard to freshwater quality. The nutrification of our lakes and rivers has meant that we have a very high percentage and up around 70% and over um, our rivers are you know, at risk of swimming in and some are unswimmable at certain times of the year. Some of our lakes, are, the signs go up, we can't swim in them. Uh, due to the uh, toxicity and the algal blooms within the waterways and water bodies. And, um, yeah, agriculture, as it became more intensified over the last 20 years, as the amount of nitrogen and, and phosphorus and other synthetics and chemicals started being applied to the farms, uh, those were obviously, like a lot of places around the world, finding their way into the waterways and um and you can really see that because you have following, but especially with the, the technology you've built, like you could see that the last 20 years, that water quality, the watersheds basically going, like tipping downwards in terms of quality in life. Oh, totally. I need to get to the bottom of the stat, but the, I saw something recently that said that we'd had a 650% increase in synthetic nitrogen use since 1995 in New Zealand. So the intensification has been very serious and the impacts are now seen in our environment. And do you see water as then being, I wouldn't say a bigger issue, but maybe a more tangible issue than carbon? As the carbon markets are taking off and people are talking a lot about it, but I always feel maybe water is closer or we there, there is more happening there or more potential. Totally, Colin. That's, um, we've chosen to, I mean, we all know what the markets are doing with regard to carbon and why, the, the, why there's such a strong emphasis on that, rightly or wrongly. Yeah, we're baselining soil uh, organic carbon, soil organic. Uh, we're baselining a whole bunch of things on farms, but we have chosen to focus on water uh, for a lot of reasons. Our science team at Tor has been working on this, um, looking at soil moisture content, a um, whole lot of areas around um, irrigation or non irrigation. Um, New Zealand has a hugely diverse geology and, and, um, you know, one of the, for the size of our, our footprint, we've got uh, you know one of, probably one of the most diverse landscapes in the in the world. So it means we can test and see what's going on across these different uh, geological and topographical um, footprints. Um, and so and and we and we've got a huge amount of um, water bodies and, and lakes within the country. Obviously, that's surrounded or is in real close proximity to a lot of our most intensive uh, agriculture. 
um, sectors and dairy is the is, is the industry in New Zealand that's created the biggest challenge uh, mostly because of the intensification of the dairy sector and so we we can see the data that our regulators and regional councils have been collecting over 20 years you can actually see the decline in the regions where we've had the highest intensification of dairy farming so it's really easy to see what the cause and effect are uh, it's not so easy to work out how to slow that down I think the other thing that's great about focusing on water and there are benefits for carbon is that, you know, we know that this climate challenge is going to take cooperation and it's going to take everybody doing their bit. But when you talk about carbon, it's really hard to kind of get that tangibly how everybody needs to contribute and do something. With water, it's a lot more physical because you're talking about waterways where many many farms border a single waterway or you're talking about a watershed or a catchment and the need for cooperation is so physical and tangible Um, and so I think that whole idea of placing water at the heart of what we're doing has really helped us zero in particularly from a technology perspective on just how important the mechanics are for incentivizing cooperation. The other piece to that too Cohen is that you know, in, in designing out the financial infrastructure where we need to get the scaled finance down to the front line, we've chosen to start at the front line first. We need to understand as deeply as we can the psychology of the farmer, uh, what the farm environment looks like, what the sector is that the farmer is operating in. If we understand that, then we start to understand what the critical success factors are that are going to lead that farmer and those farms, whether it's a fifth generation family farm or a corporate farm to start to take action in a way that's going to lead to a lighter environmental and climate footprint, but at the same time uh, be more profitable, at least be more profitable, if not as profitable as what they were when they started. So understanding that psychology has been really important for us. And then we can start to build up up from there. So let's unpack that a bit. What is the technology piece of Toha? And then, I mean, it's clear why you chose regenerative agriculture, but it still would be good to dive a bit into that and unpack why it's such a perfect fit New Zealand and Region Ag for the technology piece that you have been building over the last years? I think for us, this comes down to trust. And we wanted to build a platform that helped everybody uh, lean back in in situations where everybody throws their hands up in the air and says, not my problem. <laughs> we wanted to build a platform that was centered almost 100% around trust. So for so for us, the technology starts with this concept of a pledge, a contract, a commitment. Um, you know, we don't, we, I guess it is a few hundred, hundreds of years ago that we actually used to talk about, you know, um, giving an oath, um, giving your word, saying, doing what you say um, you're going to do um, and and being trustworthy. Um, and so for us, we put this, this pledge, this contract commitment to take action, to reduce um, your impacts on the environment, to make a transition to regenerative agriculture at, at the sort of start of the technology and, and then for us, the data piece is, is the really important bit because it allows us to um, take measurement data that proves that you are doing what you said you'd do um, and that that change is, is having the impact that everybody hopes that you'll have. and Sort of enforce trust. Yeah, yeah. Trust but verify. <laughs> and that's what we think is, is really important and needed right now is this idea that 
we can come back to the table, we can cooperate and we can trust one another to do what's needed to actually build back out of these challenges that we have. So how does it work practically? Let's say I'm a farmer in one of the catchment areas you're working in or you're looking at, or, and I, I really want to take a pledge of starting at least a transition towards of applying more regenerative practices. What would a, a concrete pledge look like? And what would it mean for me in next season or this season to take the first steps in, in terms of support? Because we all know the first steps are the most difficult ones. Yeah, so just kind of following on from what I was saying before about understanding the behavior of the farmer and tying this question into the last one around carbon. If we ask ourselves, you know, in order for a farmer to succeed day in, day out, they get out up at, at four o'clock in the morning, they, they look outside, it's not carbon they're looking for, it's water. And so, um, you know, hence why we're saying, well, if we know what water is, is what, what that looks like on the farm, what it means to the farmer, what it means to success, then that's our starting point for the things that we need to start measuring and monitoring. Carbon is almost not a byproduct of that, but the relationship's critical, as you know. Um, so we'll measure that secondarily. And water is much more certain, right? Water is much more easy, at least runoff is easy to measure. Chemical use is relatively easy to measure and then it's much more concrete. And we've been doing it for much longer compared to carbon, I think. That's exactly right. So we know, we, we know what the inputs are. We know what that looks like, volumes and where they're going. So that farmers are collecting that data every day uh, and putting sensors in the rivers now. I mean, attribution's still not perfect, but we can still get some re a really good view on what the impacts of the inputs and the farming practices look like. So what a pledge looks like, and remember we're focusing on dairy in the first instance, we do have some sheep and beef um, farms in play at the moment, but we've been focusing all of our work and research and design around the dairy. So we've had some of our team out working with dairy farmers, writing pledges, getting the pledge finance up and running. So what a pledge looks like to get started is we want to know three or four key things at a high level. Um, we want to know that in order, and these are based on our research around what a successful transition looks like within year one. So we've got farmers we call pathfinders that we've been working with, dairy farmers who have been in the transition program for anywhere between uh, two years and seven years, eight years. So we've been collecting the data across those transitions, uh, focusing on things like animal health and well-being, uh, the, um, the species, the plant species that have been put into the pastures. Uh, the milk uh, solids, how much milk is being produced, uh, and also the financials. And so we've got a really good line of sight across that. So when we look at the measures of success for dairy farming in New Zealand, we know that when you go from a monocultural um, system from, say, rye grass and clovers up to a, a, um, a more diverse system of, you know, anything from nine to 30 different types of plant species, Straight away, we know that by going to that mixed multi-species um, uh, pasture, the biodiversity just in the plants alone is enough to kickstart the biodiversity that occurs below the ground in the soil, but above the ground with insects and bird life and everything starts to come back to life again. Which is something I can do in the first year, basically. Like the changing my cover crop mix is, I wouldn't say easy and might be expensive because it depends how many hectares or acres I manage, but it is something I don't need to wait for the tree to grow. That's right. And it is more expensive than, than just planting, continuing to plant your monocultural, you know, put those seeds down every year, two years, three years, whatever that looks like. Uh, but in this process, remember, we're dropping out uh, all the synthetic and chemical inputs right at the start. And so you kind of offset some of those costs, some costs with other new ones. 
So we want to see the uh, diversity of those plant species going. And the farmers, I mean, that's part of the change program. They sign up for that really easily. They just want to know what types of seeds they need to get down. And that might vary a little bit, but mostly it's reasonably generic across the system. We want to see that the stock rotation rates grow. I mean, typically you'll see anything between 12 days and you know, 25 days before the cows are allowed back in the same paddock again. We've got to go to at least 30 days before the uh, cows are allowed back in that paddock again. So at least a 30-day uh, minimum stock rotation rate. Um, if you can get up to 40 or 50, which some farmers are doing that um, reasonably well now, uh, we know that, that those pastures are going to get the chance to bounce back and uh, the biological uh, process, nature is going to really kick in and do its thing. Uh, and so those are two two really um, key indicators that we look at for the pledges to get started. The other one is to get the synthetic nitrogen, start to back that down. We don't specify what that needs to drop to. We just need to, the data to be provided to show that it's dropping. We can say now that best practice is to get it to zero, and you can do that pretty quickly. You might need to apply a bit of urea every now and then if you need to do a bit of, I think you need to do a bit of catch up. But we're seeing farmers go through year one now, starting zero nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen inputs from day one, and they're doing really well. Uh, and we want to see a reduction in chemicals. And this is all geared around what are those things that these guys need to do in order to get the biological function and activity and well-being and wellness back into the pastures, which flows almost immediately back into the animals. We're seeing production curves drop off slightly but then come bounce back up again you know within the second half of the year they start to come back again obviously adjusting for seasons do you see quality changes as well in the milk yeah totally so one of the key metrics there is so, i mean in order to make the data collection part as easy as possible low cost as possible high quality high volume data in order to run a low transition transaction cost right across and data acquisition cost across the um, platform uh, the easiest thing we can do is take data that's been collected every day, if not every week, off the farm. And so the, things like somatic cell counts and milk urea levels are collected every time the milk leaves the farm. It's all automated. Now, we can see that data. What we can see is that within the first three to six months, indicators like somatic cell counts and milk urea levels start to drop away. At, and they drop away at about the same rate as the vet costs start to drop away. And so now you're starting to see these indicators of that represent what the well-being of the animals. The milk urea also represents the quality of the milk because once you get over a certain level, the milk company won't take, will leave your milk behind, they won't pick it up. And so because it degrades the quality of the, the, the product. So, you know, we can talk about the importance of focusing on carbon because the markets want us to focus on it. But if we're not focusing on things like the quality of the product, the well-being of the animals, therefore the production, the, the, the productivity of the animals, the well-being of the pastures, then we're going to miss the point for the farmers. And if we miss the point for the farmers, we're not going to get the accelerated scale actions on the ground that we need in order for us to really start solving this kind of crisis that we're, we're in right now around climate. So the farmer makes the pledge, like I'm starting the transition, I have this amount of acres, this amount of heads of cattle. And then how does this connect to, first of all, the platform, you're collecting a lot of data, as you mentioned, but then how does it connect to the financial world as well? Like where does the investor or investors coming into this picture? Well, I think that this part is really potentially how we differ from a lot of the great work that we're seeing happening all over the world. But 
For us, this pledge is a data asset. It's a legal agreement, but it's but it's also an asset in that it um, sets up the rights to reuse the measurement data that's being captured on the farm. Um, once you're starting to think about data as an asset because of the value um, that can be um, attracted from reusing the data, so um, whether that's to prove um, the uh, the benefits of what's happening on farm and uh, to through to consumers or through to regulators. Um, or back into uh, the bank who is um, supporting or, or has the mortgage over the, the farm, um, you're, you're actually um, in a position where the measurement data is is, is able to earn revenue, um, new revenue for the farmer. Um, but because we are treating this um, pledge as an asset, we're also able to do a second thing, which is to, to offer pledge finance. And pledge finance is, is debt. Um, uh, to help accelerate the the transition, or and it really is is has to be tailored to uh, the individual farmer's needs. Every every farmer's different, um, comes into the process with different levels of existing debt um, or different challenges um, to to face in terms of their their uh, farming system. But pledge finance is designed to cover either the real or perceived risk of embarking on the transition. Um, so we, we often hear a lot of um, pushback around or misconceptions around the shift to either um, organics or regen um, as being, you know, a, a, a serious dip um, for a number of years. And, and, and whilst we have the data to prove that that isn't the case, um, the pledge finance is really there to help um, give the farmer confidence to lean into those very first steps. Um, and, and we know that um, particularly in dairy there, because of the intensification um, and the increasing demand for um for inputs into the dairy system that those debt levels continue to get higher and higher. And so providing additional debt um, is not something that we are um, really excited about, but we know that there is a um, a job for it. um, And it could be that it's swapping out um, higher cost capital um, in in the business. Um, We've had a very interesting dynamic um, in in the New Zealand market, and this is, I don't know how unique this is um, uh, to our situation, but from a banking perspective, uh, nitrogen application rates have been used in the banking system as a proxy for farm valuation um, in the credit assessment process. So for very many years, you would see farmers attempt to make transitions to regenerative agriculture and actually be penalised with higher interest rates by their banks. Just to get that straight, so the higher rate of the higher my rate of nitrogen, the lower my cost of capital until now. So the basically the reduction in nitrogen and the reduction in stocking rates were seen as a loss a loss in your productive capacity, and so and therefore you, it throws out your dynamics of your P and Ls and your ultimately your balance sheet, and so. Um, when the whole industry is geared around high production, higher input, high output, and everyone in the supply chain, including the banks, is making money from that, except for the farmers nowadays, uh, and the and the consumers are paying too much for food, um, 
then we've got this kind of this supply chain, uh, you know, and we could call it a value chain, except there's too much va- we think there's too much value destruction going on rather than accretion. Um, you start to get these dynamics that try attempt to hold it there. Um, well, that's not helping the farmers by any stretch. And so um, now we've been working with the banks to provide that, start to provide that data and to show that the debt risk can start to come down. We can back off this idea that uh, reducing, backing off um, the intensive uh, model and to a more, you know, taking the pr- lid off the pressure cooker is actually, uh, it actually strengthens the P&Ls and balance sheets in a reasonably short period of time. Therefore, interest rates should reflect that rather than penalizing them, it should be rewarding them. And just to be clear, who's financing currently these pledges? We have a pretty interesting dynamic around finance as well. With our pledge finance product, we're able to blend different types of capital. So uh, we take grant um, and philanthropy, um, apply it to certain milestones in the pledge, as well as um, debt and equity um, as well. And so what we try and do is is blend the um, investment interests, depending on who's who's got what objectives in terms of engaging with the farmer. And, and that what that does is create a, a package of um, funding for the pledge that is really geared around the farmer's success. So um, we can, um, we've designed the pledge finance product to make sure that we can engage with central and regional governments. There's you know, quite significant grant funding programs um, that uh, don't always necessarily um, show up the proof um, of of good use of funds. Um, and then, obviously, there's the, um, the the debt and equity interest in the value of the um, region transition. But I just wanted to pick up on what um, Mike was saying around the banks. The other thing that we we have in the New Zealand market, which we think is um, happening earlier. In New Zealand than it than it is in the rest of the world, and is helping us design um, uh, with with maybe a few extra um, levers. Um, is the requirements for um, banks and um, public and investment bodies in the New Zealand market to uh, disclose uh, publicly their f- climate risk in their in their financial offerings, and so. Uh, TCFD, the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures, and and what that's what that means is that the banks are now really interested in understanding the climate risk that sits within their agricultural lending, which creates a perfect opportunity for region farmers to demonstrate that they're actually um, able to be more climate resilient because they are able to hold more moisture in the soil and um, protect the soils and stay greener for longer. So when it comes to droughts and floods, um, they're they're in a a good position. Um, So making sure that the pledge is able to offer the data um, that that proves that the um, risk at the farm level is changing is a really big part of the work that we're doing to to support the the banks to have what they need as well as the farmers to get what they need. On the piece you mentioned before where basically the data becomes an asset and you mentioned a few potential clients like banks, uh, regulators, but also consumer brands. Are banks in this case paying for having that data and that monitoring and thus it becomes valuable for the farmer? And if not, how would that work with other potential customers like 
a milk brand or like the end user or the processor at, at the end of the product, do you see there's their interest in having verifiable different type of milk or is everything just being blended in one one big jar? Like, do you have the same issues that we see in some renewable energy projects or the energy sectors as a whole? Like, how does that data becomes, it's super valuable, but how does it actually become valuable as, as in money flowing to the farm? I think this comes back to that idea of trust. We're building Toha basically on the on the belief that uh, verifiable proof of impact is going to be really important um, in the markets globally um, over the, the next decade as everybody rushes to make really big commitments but doesn't necessarily provide proof that they're meeting them. And so um, our technology is all designed to make it really easy to uh, track the provenance of data from farm scale and then make sure it's really easy to packet it up as claims to, to go into all of those different market opportunities that you described, whether that's uh, premium carbon offsets um, or water investment products or um, uh, you know grant programs back to um, regulators or uh, back to government or, or proving things to regulators these claims or these bundles of the data from um, from the pledge uh, basically create verifiable proof of the um, the actions that have happened on farm and so uh, the the technology is is designed to basically attribute the value that's exchanged when those claims are, are purchased um, back to the investors and the farmers who have um, who have been uh, working together on the transition. And where do you see that market take off first? Obviously, it's a bit of a, a guess. Like the next 10 years, a lot of these things are going to happen. We just don't know. Where do you have seen the most interest at the moment as you've been working on this for a while? Where are the first bites being taken in, into this data model? Is that the banks that you just mentioned because of disclosures? Is it a food brand? Like what has been the most exciting moves on getting their hands on this data and thus money flowing towards farmers and investors? I think it's definitely the two that you've highlighted. So it's the the disclosure piece, but we also think that there's going to be an enormous amount of innovation in the insurance space, which is going to create critical demand for this data as well. We are very excited about the shifts we see in consumer brands um, and we know that a lot of the big um, producers in New Zealand are gearing up with programs within their supply chains to actually prove the value of what's happening on farms um, and uh, you know make sure that we can showcase regenerative um, New Zealand made products to the world. Um, but we also know that uh, the world is changing um, and that, you know, New Zealand as an export nation, we um, we are sending a lot of our, um, our, our food offshore. And we know that the regulatory um, environments for for those trade arrangements are, are changing all the time. And so just making sure that this data about the environmental um, performance of New Zealand farms is available um, back through those supply chains all the way to the to the, the ports of uh, those export markets is going to be really, really important over the, over the next few years. And how significant could, I mean, this is predicting a market which is impossible, but how significant are these uh, potential flows for a farmer like is it is it a nice extra to have potentially or do you see 
Um, as I'm asking question, I'm realizing we're going to also predict of carbon prices, which is impossible. But how, how significant do you think it could be for farmers? Um, apart from obviously the PL, which gets better from the practices, et cetera, et cetera, how significant could this data play in the best use of the word? Well, we think it's going to bit sharp in two ways. We think the the value of the data will attract new revenue streams from from the reuse of that data, but we also think that it's going to help in avoiding future costs as well. So um, the uh, what we can say is that uh, we, when we talk to the banks in the New Zealand market, they're talking about instead of penalising farmers um, for removing synthetic nitrogen, we're now talking about interest rate rebates for the farmers who can demonstrate that they're actually um, addressing the climate risk on their farm and making themselves more resilient. Um, and so, you know, you don't need to be talking about um, too significant uh, interest rate rebate on a really highly leveraged um, dairy farm uh, for too many months before that starts to really uh, look significant in terms of the the, the business um, that's operating. Um, but we, you know, there is a, a really um, important dynamic. Um, our agriculture in New Zealand has been outside of our emissions trading scheme, and and that is a going that's going to be a future cost um, wherever that lands in terms of. Um, farmers, and so uh, we think that this data that uh, uh, the pledge holders have is going to be really important in both the emissions trading scheme and the freshwater regulations to be able to demonstrate that regenerative farmers are are not contributing um, as as much to these problems that the regulators are seeking uh, with you know sticks to to kind of and and quite heavy handed approaches that they're not contributing to those problems and hopefully they're contributing to the solution yeah. yeah that's right and how does this connect to the larger financial because you mentioned in the beginning mike as well like there's so much money available looking for impact investments esg has come through the roof in, in last year and we can all ask the questions about that obviously but there's money looking for investment opportunities with not just financial benefits but impact benefits as well how does that tie into, how do you see foreign investors becoming active in this? Or how do you see large institutional investors potentially, or the crowd, obviously very important as retail investors, as myself would love to be part of things like this as well. How do you see this playing out over the next years as a lot of money is needed to finance pledges? potentially around the world? Well, we've been really excited to be in several kind of validation partnerships with asset managers and testing these pledges out with institutional investors that, you know, as financial products, the pledge finance agreements that we've designed, they're debt securities. So the, the pledge is a data asset. The pledge finance agreement is a debt security. It doesn't take too much of an imagination to imagine what, you know, many pledges uh, refinanced as as green bonds, uh, what, what that looks like or, you know, how, how, how cool it will, will be to be able to, um, you know, invest in portfolios where, you know, a big slice of uh, uh, your investment is going into direct farm um, investments. Um, we've just got to um, do the really important work at, at grassroots right now uh, to get really easy to create and build these pledges on our technology platform, um, support the advisors who do the really important work with farmers, um, you know, in the real world, giving context to this digital process um, and making sure that we are able to blend the the early finance that comes in, um, the, the grant and, and, and impact capital that comes in to get these transitions rolling once 
once that's underway, then, uh, you know, everybody's in, in partnership with the farmer and wants to see that re- refinancing or securitization um, event actually happen because it, it kind of validates the, the the early work that has been done. And so um, we we see a huge future for, for pledges, um, but also for, for claims as well. Um, the other part of our platform, which is the reuse of the data, um, you know, claims as options over, you know, valuable um, valuable reports from the system, uh, whether that is for carbon or for um, for water. Um, there's there's going to be um, there's going to be great great markets for those those products too. So it's it's all ahead of us right now. A lot, a lot to prove. Um, <laughs> we try not to crystal ball gaze too much. Just keep our, our firmly planted on the ground and just keep focused on farmers and, and building pledges. And just to get a bit of the size, I mean, it's a bit of a crystal ball, but let's say the dairy industry in New Zealand, how much would be needed more or less to get most of them on a journey? Look, there's 12,000 or so dairy farms in New Zealand, Cohen. Most of those farmers are in the, have bought into the high intensive, high production model. The psyche around that and the behaviors across the, the industry norms are still sticking to that, but you're starting to see a shift now, both in the kind of one end of the bell curve started to actually make the move and some have been there for a long time. They are now showing they can get through the transition in year one without needing any additional funding. So there's a really diverse range of needs across those farmers that are making the transition. Some don't need any, others need to put new infrastructure in place and might need two, $300,000. So we're seeing what that continuum continuum looks like. But at the same time, we're seeing uh, large industry players and brands starting to say out loud that they've now spent the last 12 months right, rewriting their strategies. They've got regenerative futures. They're talking about changing the way that their supply, their producers uh, farm so that they can get the, um, their, their produce to market in a completely different way or type of product. Uh, and so the, whilst the government's moving really slowly in this space, and uh, it's not real clear whether uh, how the money markets are going to respond to this just yet. Although we've kind of we can see what it looks like in terms of the engagement we've been having on a, at a smaller scale. It's actually the middle of the industry now. Some of the processes and brands that are starting to put a stake in the ground. So that's going to start driving uh, um, a more accelerated shift into the dairy sector at that end of the bell curve. Uh, in terms of the size of that, look. I mean, if we if we can get to twenty five percent of the dairy sector within the next five years, is pretty amb- it, it could be seen as ambitious. We think that that could be conservative, and what we think will change that is the success of the uh, pledge finance and the claims revenue that are generated out of this. Nothing will change this transition um, faster or more powerfully than evidence that the financial upside for farmers is real through both uh, business as usual changes and benefits to the P and Ls and the additionality of the revenue streams that can flow from um, claims through the um, data provided off the pledge, um, through the pledge agreement. And so, you know, we're optimistic that we can see a reasonably large scale transition uh, as long as we can get those, uh, the mechanics around that right. And at the moment, we've got every reason to believe that we can. And as it feels we're, uh, it always feels we're early. And at the same time, we, I mean, many have been through this transition. This is a long journey and many people have been in the, Regen, biodynamic, organic space. I Many pioneers have been here for a long time, but at the same time, we feel like we're entering a new era or a new phase. For investors, without giving investment advice, which we obviously don't do here, but what would you tell them? Where would you focus their attention 
when they get interested in the space, they're listening maybe to this podcast, they read the books, they visit some farms, they saw some documentaries. What would you tell them as an entry point when they say, okay, I want to become active? Maybe they're not located in New Zealand, so it's not so easy to visit you and, and spend some time with dairy farms in transition. But what would be your, um, your next step if you would be in their shoes? Yeah, awesome question, Cohen. I think, look, we've seen the, the capital stack arrive when we went to, when we put it out there, what we were doing, we did a soft launch, went to, uh, went to the media, uh, we got picked up by a whole bunch of different, uh, publications, social, uh, industry, government. We were kind of bombarded in a, in a really good way. Uh, so we saw the capital stack turn up pretty quickly, but we also saw the diversity across the farmer needs turned up pretty quick. The market essentially showed itself within two or three weeks. And so what would I say to investors? Well, now I can say, well, it depends which investor you are inside of that stack, and it depends what opportunity on the other side, the cost of diversity of um, needs there are. Now, to work that out, if you don't know what regenerative ag, how, how it works, not, not just how it works, but how it works really, really well, my advice would be go to those organizations that have already put the hard work in to understand the sector and understand how, where the investment needs to go to do two things. One, in order for the investor to get some, whatever the return is that they're looking for on their money. And two, that where they're putting their money is actually going to make a positive impact or contribution to uh, the asset or the farmer or whatever it is that applying it to there on the other side. Now, when you look at who those organizations are, you know most of them, you know, you probably know all of them, you know, it's the Mad Ags, it's the Regen Networks, it's the Ori Co-op in Australia, it's, you know, what we're trying to do, it's the Rodales and Savories and Land to Market programs, the, 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 the entities exist, and those entities have the, that's replant capital, Robin O'Brien and, and, and her team doing amazing stuff, um, go there. They've done the heavy lifting. Uh, that's the funnel that the investment needs to go through. The investment's going to be much uh, safer or at least more de-risked out the other side because these guys have all done the, the hard work, both for the farmers but also for the investors. And Natalie, what do you see as a role? I don't know now. Uh, maybe it will take a bit of time. But for the crowd, for the retail investors, for the normal people that are buying the milk every day in the supermarket, apart from being a consumer or maybe even becoming a consumer again because they were switching to plant-based and you're coming back to some kind of regenerative produce. But apart from being a consumer, do you see a role for the retail investor or has it go, do we have to go first through the institutional part, the green bonds, et cetera, before the normal people on the street can also participate in this? No, I think one of the, <laughs> the most interesting things from my perspective last year in 2020 was the GameStop carnage that we saw <laughs> In the stock market, I think we have to really recognize that we're going to see activist retail investors <laughs> looking for opportunities to go right into the middle of um, you know investment opportunities that are being ignored by other investors and really starting to crowd in um, and and bring some bring some might and some visibility to to areas particularly that are neglected by government or neglected by um, big corporates in terms of their obligations and 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 I think that that's um, that's really exciting um, so from a, a retail investor perspective I just I'd just be like you know keep don't just watch the Netflix uh, documentary, like Google the names, find the organizations, um, get directly involved, um, get on the mailing lists um, that, you know, every single 
Regen Ag uh, team, like our Calm the Farm team um, globally right now, is looking for funding um, innovations, looking for new markets, and and looking to bring new products. and And they're not they're not going to be all just for the wholesale and wholesale markets and large institutional investors. We're going to find ways to actually bring really innovative, high value um, investment pro- products direct to consumers. Um, you just need to be looking out for them. And when they when they turn up, um, you know, obviously you only ever invest what you're prepared to lose when you're playing in that in that game. Um, but uh, you know, follow do the head and the heart thing, um, and and you'll get great results. Thank you so much for that. And I think we're going to have, a, I hope to have more discussions on the retail side of things. I keep bringing it up and up and it comes back and I think it's coming, but it does feel, I have said it many times on the podcast, the renewable energy space obviously has a few more years under their belt. Not if you consider the early organics and biodynamics, but especially on the run to financing, they do. And there it is much easier in many countries, not in all, to get involved with a few hundred or a few thousand dollars and euros. Um, so I have a few final questions to wrap this up. It won't be the last time we're talking because there's so much to unpack here. But where do you find yourself contrarian? Where do you think differently than most other people in the region X space? Definitely inspired by a question that John Kemp always asks. But where are you contrarian? And I would love to ask both of you, what do you see differently than most people if you go to a conference? I mean, when we went to conferences before. I mean, I, I met you at a RSFI conference a couple of years ago up in Oakland, Cohen, and got to see then, you know, the um, investment space, uh, the, the, the investor space and market coming into regenerative ag um, setting to talk about how to invest. Um, and I did feel like a, an oddball. I mean, wh- I, one of the reasons I was up in the US at that time was I'd said to Nat, I'm going up to the US, I'm going to, I was, I went to SOCAP, went to RFSI. I was looking for the innovation in the investor space into this area, and I I was finding that every day, saying I haven't found it yet. I haven't found it yet. I saw you one at your presentation. I love the kind of what you were what you were starting to angle at, but I certainly didn't see it from anyone who was speaking about this from the markets or from the bond space. There was some traditional mindsets talking about going into a new sector, but there wasn't a traditional mindset saying talking about a new innovation in the, as a financial product. Um, and we kind of, I felt like a bit of a fish out of water when I was there. And I, we still do. We, you know, the area we want to crack is the financial, is the financial markets, capital markets, moving into tokens. Uh, how do we bridge that gap from a traditional into the, what the future is going to be? Um, but where we differ is whilst that's the almost our endpoint, our boots are on the ground as much as humanly possible every day of the week with the farmer. And I know there's a whole ton of region ag um, um, advisors and farmers out there. That's that's the, the how they make a living. That's not where we come from. But man, we've spent so much time out on in kitchens and with farms, saying we're not we're talking to investment bankers. We're talking to all sorts of investors, um, retail bank, whatever. Um, but man, we ain't budging until we understand as deeply as humanly possible what's going to make you guys succeed and win. You, we're not going to solve carbon if these guys aren't going to be at the forefront of driving the change. And so that's where we found ourselves a little bit different. Regen Network are there as well. Um, but, you know, it's an area I think that we've spent a huge amount of effort, time and energy and investment in really deeply un- understanding. And then just to round that out, what that's meant is that 
that's how we got to saying, okay, carbon's a thing, we get that, but that's not where we're going to spend most of our time to try and un- understand and look at what the new market opportunities need to be, which is why we landed on water. Personally, for me, I think the most contrarian thing that I'm I'm confronted with personally is that I, I went vegan for the environment, you know, five years ago. And I developed a view of agriculture and of particularly of dairy. And I just find myself humbled every day by the enormous impact, positive impact that agriculture done right can have for the future. And I just feel really grateful for the opportunity to be working alongside farmers because the reality was that being a vegan and sitting back and and passing judgment, you know, obviously working hard to make conscious choices in terms of how what I was buying, but really I I wasn't doing anything um, material in terms of, um, you know, putting more carbon back into the soil or actively planting trees or getting out there and regenerating our indigenous biodiversity. And so I take my hat off to farmers and I've pretty much dedicated myself to making sure that they've got everything that they need to do the the work that a lot of us town folk can't do (laughs) sitting behind our computers. And do you remember if it was a moment like you visited a farm, was it a gradual process where you saw the potential of, of agriculture beyond the, the judgment of if everybody goes vegan, uh, we should, we, we're okay. And actually the truth is a bit more complex than that. What was that a moment of one farm visit? I'm always interested in these, in these light bulb moments or light bulb continuum, like a light bulb journeys, but do you remember that or was it a longer process? Oh, it was a longer process, but I think for me, it came down to compassion, right? So there's a whole lot of really difficult change that we face with, with climate change and everybody needs to give up some things that we've got used to in order to have a chance for living uh, regeneratively on on this planet again but for me it was recognizing that um that there was there was more positive um benefits to be had um, by actually working with farmers than um, disengaging. Um, so yeah, it was um, it was a tough learning. <laughs> um, and uh, you know I'll probably be kicked out of a few um, <laughs> vegan Facebook groups <laughs> uh, after this podcast. but you know that's that's kind of where I got to personally was recognizing that um, yeah, there was more work to be done than just fighting. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point. We had a vegan cheese maker, Willie Croft, which I'll definitely put the link below on the podcast that had that realization as well when they did an LCA and noticed that the cashew nuts they were using for their vegan cheese were definitely a step up from industrial dairy, but absolutely not as clean and as environmentally friendly as they hoped they would be. As they were shipped around the world, they were dried using natural and obviously extractive fossil fuel gas. And so they switched their whole process to beans and to other, but it was a very painful transition or very painful realization to see like we're actually not as far as we hoped we would have been. But I think it's necessary. We need the whole movement here to push on ag and to pull on ag at the same time. And to end with a final question for both of you, but let's start with Natalie. If there's one thing you could change, you have a magic wand, there's one thing you can change in the food and ag industry or sector or whatever you want to call it, what would that be? I think it would be um, the the inability for us to get over where we've come from and the knowledge that we've used in the past. And it's really the open mindset piece. I think we just, um, what I've observed over the last couple of years is that we're, we're either looking at science gaps or we're looking 
at um, you know pro- problems with products and things like that. And I think the reality is is that it's it's time for everybody to to be open to new ideas and and I think um, yeah it's just more more openness and and more um, sharing of information. Um, I, I would love to see more open data um, and, and more knowledge sharing, um, particularly within the, the corporate um, environments uh, and, and less locking, locking uh, people out of the knowledge that they need to change quickly. Adding on to that, uh, for me, it's about, I think, I'd like to see much shorter supply chains with friendlier capital coming into the industry. Um, you know, the, it's the change. Every farmer we've met who's made the change to regenerative agriculture, the number one driver has been to improve the economics. The environmental, climate, and biodiversity outcomes have been um, important to them, but that hasn't been the primary driver. So, how do we make a, uh, the economics around this much more friendly by shortening that supply chain? We say to farmers now, man, looking in from the outside, if there's one thing you guys have got really good at, it's writing checks for every out for everybody else in your supply chain and getting as much money off your farm as quickly as you possibly can. How do we turn that around? So um, getting a lot of that, like we talked about the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, you know, you start to see that drop to zero. There's a massive cost drops out of the supply chain. Sure, someone in that supply chain is going to lose out ultimately, but the benefit comes back to the growers and the consumers. And at the end of the day, that's where all the uh, feedback that we're getting is telling us this is where we need that value to flow to. So um, that would be my magic wand moment. I think it's a perfect answer. By the time this is up, I don't know if the interview I just recorded will be up already, but we're, we recorded an interview with one of the largest biodynamic farms in Europe, over 2,000 hectares and selling everything and always for the last 40 years directly to consumers. And you can see the wealth that has created, the wealth in terms of biodiversity, obviously, now they're profitable. It wasn't easy in the beginning, but, and you see the intimate relationship they have created with their customers. And of course, that's easier in, in wine and certain other products. So direct to consumer, I would say director to consumer, they took a very extreme route, but have been not consciously, actually, it was more an accident at the beginning, but now definitely it's turned into one of their great strengths because they own the relationship with their consumer and the consumer owns them in a certain extent as well. Totally. It's a perfect end to not easy in a New Zealand context where a lot of the consumers are very far away, but also there, I think there's a transition to be made and to see. So I want to thank you so much for your time today. Very exciting times ahead. I hope we'll be checking in not too far away, not in the too distant future to see how all the pledges are going, technology platform, and a lot more work you, you have been doing. So thank you. Thank you, Colin. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.